1: Blog Talk Radio Noons is an absolute podcast. Uh, Before we get started, just wanted to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information, and you can listen to audiobooks wherever and whenever you want, on your devices, on your computers, in an airplane, in a car, wherever. And you get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at AudiblePodcast.com slash NoonsMagician. Um, I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is special guest Aaron Goldfarb. Hi. How's it going?
2: Good. Thanks for having me. I uh, I have books on Audible.com, so you could uh, redeem one of those for free if you uh, use your code. It
1: yeah, will actually be uh, one of the books I pulled up for our uh, kind of mid-podcast read for recommended uh, recommended books for people. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so uh Aaron's here today to talk about Syracuse, um, as well as beer and of course uh his new books, the uh The Guide for the Single Man and Single Woman, which we will get to later on. Uh but first, uh the sad state of affairs with Syracuse. Uh Aaron, your thoughts. I know you're a little bit closer to the action than uh, than I am at the moment, being three thousand miles away. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I'm not sure it's good to be close to the action. It was great when we were 25-0 last year. It was, uh, it was great for the last six or seven years. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a weird thing to not be undefeated and highly ranked and actually wondering, you know, how this season's going to go. Uh, it's uh, it's It's been a weird feeling um, to feel like 99% of other uh, college basketball fans. So I don't like it, even though I know uh, – it's uh, growing pains, and it's it's natural to have a, a bad season, which I hope could eventually spin into a, a, a promising season.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, right now, I uh, it's interesting how quickly I think as fans we, we depart from, from rougher times or, or rough starts. Um, you know, I, I know on the blog the other day there was an article that talked about the O seven O eight team, and they were the last team to lose... Uh, lose three games in non-conference play. And it's interesting how quickly all of us just kind of pushed that to the back of our minds and forgot a time when when this team was kind of hanging around the bubble um, for a few years there. I guess for me now, it's it's really just resetting expectations and trying to tell myself that the sky uh, has yet to fall. um, Doesn't mean it won't, admittedly. Um, I was joking with a friend of mine today that, uh, we figured might as well get the postseason ban out of the way by just giving it to ourselves rather than letting the NCAA get that traction. But um, hopefully it doesn't come to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's tough. I mean, if we can assume a loss to Villanova and going nine and four out of conference, then you're looking at, by my estimation, maybe having to win 12 games in the Atlantic uh, Coast Conference, including uh, the, the, the tournament, to to make the NCAA tournament, which, you know, to me is kind of potentially disappointing because I think by February and March, in just about every single game we play, we're going to have the two best players on the court in, uh, Ricky and Raheem Christmas and Chris McCullough. I mean, we have the two best players on the court right now in most games. Raheem's playing insane and McCullough's playing great as well. So it's, you know, somewhat disappointing to know we have, Two studs. I mean, uh, Ken Pomeroy after Team Christmas is rated as the seventh best player in NCAA uh, A this year, uh, as of last week. So we have two great players right now, and just no one else is, is is pulling their weight, not even close. And we're dropping games that perhaps we shouldn't. And now we're about to go through a gauntlet of the uh, ACC. And are we too too buried to uh, to make the NCAA tournament? I sure hope not. Because it'd be really disappointing. Because I think this team's eventually gonna, eventually gonna get it on track.
1: Yeah. What's frustrating to me right now is, is how much talent we have compared to a lot of previous teams, ones that have both been successful and struggled. Um, and to see us really kind of have to fight our way through, um, what well, hasn't been an easy slate by any means, but it certainly hasn't been the, the toughest slate how to fight our way through, really, you know, look great, obviously, against against lesser teams, look not so great against even average teams. Um, the loss of St. John's Smart just because of, um, you know, the history of us beating them at the Dome, uh, in general, just our our overall dominance in that, you know, quote-unquote rivalry. It, it's tough to see a team that just completely can't shoot the basketball, and, and more than any other team we've had lately, um, you know, this team seems completely predicated on if McCullough and Christmas do well, um, we have a shot, but it still doesn't mean we're going to win. And that, I think, is scary for a lot of fans who, again, are used to a lot of wins lately.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's particularly disappointing. Rakeem Christmas was incredible against St. John's, and McCullough is pretty solid, too. And, you know, I think at the four-minute mark, McCullough, uh, there was that uh, flagrant foul, and we were up by, I believe, one point with two shots in the ball, which we turned into not four points or five points, but one more point. And then I believe St. John's came back and immediately hit a three. So, I mean, that was the the turning point of a close game, a game where, again, not a single person on the court played well, except for McCullough and Rakeem. Now I guess uh, uh, Michael G. played all right. But uh, aside from that, no one particularly played well, and we almost beat a team that's probably going to make the tournament. Um, Ultimately, we obviously lost by 12 points in the the, the final three minutes, but it's, it's just frustrating to know we're so close, and if Trevor Cooney could hit some goddamn shots and, you know, Caleb Joseph could, you know, not turn it over as much, that we'd actually be winning most of these games, so... I don't know whether that's something to be happy about or proud about or to go, well, I can't see Cooney ever hitting shots and I can't see Caleb Joseph ever turning it around this year. I, I don't know. I'm, it's a really confusing time.
1: Yeah, that brings up a good point, too. I know um, I was reading a couple of things about uh, outside of Syracuse. I also root for the New York Knicks, sadly, and, the, and there was a there was an article specifically pointing out that, you know, at the end of the day, while, while the beginning of the season has been terrible, um, for that team. Um, it's still very much a work in progress. Um, there's still a lot to learn. Um, and it is a long season. And it was interesting to me because, you know, as college fans, I feel like because of the length of these seasons, or lack thereof uh, for football and basketball, were very quick on the trigger in terms of generalization. But at the same time, um, you know, this is very much a work in progress. Uh, I, I think I'm not sure Beheim really knows who is going to show up night to night. And that's not his fault. It's just the nature of it. Right now we have two proven players who should be on the floor for 35 minutes a game, and then we have a lot of other guys who who can kind of roll in and out. Um, and, and I think that as stands, we kind of have to just view it realistically as these are a lot of kids. These are a lot of kids who haven't played together before. Um, they don't have the advantages uh, that last year's team did of playing in Canada for a few games and gelling over the summer. Um, you know, th- this is very much a group that is going to have to learn on the fly, and it might take another loss um, to Villanova, and hopefully that's it. Um, I I fear for what happens against Louisiana Tech—a team that can run. But um, yeah, if we can if we can really come together over time, um, no, this is not going to be you know a, a one or a two or three seed, but you know, this could very much end up rounding into uh, a seven or eight seed that that at least challenges someone. And you know what? Like, I don't really think that that's, I don't think that's, that's anything to be ashamed of, especially when you look at other, other quote unquote elite programs that have yeah. and have like, those eight and nine teams lately.
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, I do feel like this is a, a dangerous six or 17 team, team, uh, team by March. Um, and I'm hoping we, we don't squander that opportunity, but, you know, if you look at the schedule after Villanova, it's pretty favorable. I think we have six winnable ACC games to start. So if you're telling me you we're going nine and four out of conference and then potentially winning our first six ACC games, would you sign up for 15 and four right now? Of course you would. We'd, we'd probably be ranked again. Um, so, you know, I, I'd feel pretty good if we entered the tournament as a dangerous six seed. McCullough's only going to be getting better. Raheem's been pretty unstoppable on both ends of the court at the moment. and you got to figure someone on on the uh, at the guard positions is going to start hitting shots or scoring or at least not turning over the ball on every possession. So, you know, I don't feel great about this team, but you know, I I think it could potentially be a fun team to watch in uh, February and March. You know, I I think about teams like Tennessee last year or NC State last year that weren't particularly good for most of the year, but were were dangerous by March, and you know, hopefully, we're one of those teams that. People are going. God, these guys sucked for a lot of the year, and now we certainly don't want to play them in March. I mean, that's the that's the dream for sure.
1: And I personally love that. And obviously, I think we have a lot to um, we have a lot to do on offense in particular. Uh, what do you think is kind of the source of our offensive of struggles of late? I know uh, we've joked on the site that kind of you know going back to if you want to compare it to the last team in the tournament, the oh seven oh eight squad that was a squad that couldn't play defense but could also run with just about anyone. And this team is completely opposite. Um, they can play very good shutdown defense um, and, but at the same time can't shoot or score well. What do you think is in the cause of this kind of, you know, I'd say at this point looking at a three- or four-year just gradual drop-off in the ability to score points? Is this a product of the college game, a product of an emphasis on the zone over – overscoring, I mean, what do you think is to kind of point a finger at in terms of why Syracuse suddenly can't seem to run um, at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's,
1: it's. first of all, it's not three to four
2: years. I mean, it's hard as it is to believe Dante Green was <laughs> was on the team six to seven years ago. Um, and the college game has changed quite a bit uh, in that time, obviously. And, and and most teams are are pretty terrible at offense. The, You know, I've I've spoken widely about this. The the college game has become exceptionally boring. Long shot clocks, bad shots at the buzzer. I mean, we saw the classic St. John's bank one in from from 30 feet on a a buzzer-beater prayer. I mean, that's become offense nowadays. I mean, Louisville won a game this year with 45 points, I think. It's just college basketball has become exceptionally boring and plodding and slow and to a certain extent, Tyler Ennis was the perfect player for that kind of slow game. And, you know, our zone defense is pretty perfect for that kind of game. But, you know, you got to hit shots. You can't be the second worst in the nation at three-point shooting, which I believe we are right now. Um, there's just a lot of bad players, which which ultimately is actually a good thing for us because, as I said, by February and March, I think we'll have the two best players on the court against just about every team we play, aside from maybe Kentucky or Duke. And we've seen it work for UConn. It, it leads to victories when you have the best players on the court at the end. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I know I've mentioned the same myself, and it's odd among among college basketball fans, and specifically Syracuse fans. I feel like mentioning mentioning that you may that you may like uh, pro basketball more than college seems like blasphemy. But to me, I mean. You know, I, I am someone who subscribes to NBA League Pass. I do watch a ton of NBA games, and I watch them because the college game, I mean, partially because of, you know, the rule changes haven't worked. The one and done has really watered down the talent pool. Um, there's yeah. just, there's too much parity, and, and for the NBA, I, I just enjoy watching fluid basketball and seeing people actually run offensive plays and actually being competent Um you know, in the passes they make and the shots they take. And, and to me, it's, it's odd as someone who, who grew up definitely liking the college game more and spent years loving the college game more um, to see that transition. And to still see so many people uh, yeah. resist. I'm not yeah. saying you should stop watching Syracuse, but there's no way you can tell me that watching a Syracuse game is, is or any college game really is more fun than watching, um, you know, a team like the Spurs um, or – or a team even like the, I mean, someone middling like the Charlotte Hornets run their offense for a night?
2: Yeah. I mean, my heart's still in the college game. I don't get the, the thrills from watching the Knicks win, and I don't get the lows from watching them lose that I do from Syracuse, for sure. But, you know, the dumbest thing a lot of college basketball fans say is that there's no defense in the NBA. There's plenty of defense in the NBA. But what there also is is exceptional offensive talents who – can exploit one inch of space to make a three-pointer. Who don't botch, you know, possessions to score. Whereas, you know, it's not even fifty-fifty if you give our guys an open look if they're going to make it. You, you never know, you know. Whereas, you know, if Carmelo Anthony has a wide-open three, it's 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 a foul shot. It's it's guaranteed, and that's the difference, you know. Uh, college teams just just can't compared to the NBA players, and you're right, it's a much more enjoyable game to watch. Unfortunately, my heart's not quite in it as much, and that's because I didn't go to the College of the New York Knicks, and I went to, to Syracuse University for better or worse, and that's where my heart lies, and you know, sometimes it can be exceptionally boring to watch us both win and lose.
1: That's a fair point, too. I, I've tried to it's, – it's interesting. I feel like I've tried to explain to people who aren't – aren't big college sports fans um, like what it means to root for not just the team but root for the team of the school you went to and I think there's there's an exceptional um, kind of emotional draw there and it's one that, that no one can really capture in words and it, it might seem irrational on paper but you know I talk to people that might not have gone to a school that really had much in terms of sports they don't really understand the obsession I mean Syracuse football was, was terrible by all accounts this year, and yet, you know, I had in my cubicle, like, put up all the banners just like it was at varsity, Had my Syracuse football helmet sitting on my desk, and and was willing to talk about the game with anyone who would pass by, and this is even, you know, again, 3,000 miles away from campus. So it, it's, it's hard to explain to people away from it, and I think, you know, the same for people who live and die with their protein. Um, I, I think it's hard for them to really explain to college people how they could possibly get so invested in something that they didn't really they they didn't they didn't live and, and be immersed with in the same way that college fans are. Yeah, I mean, pro sports, which is, I love
2: equally, is 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 rooting for laundry. It always is. Whereas you know, college sports is rooting for guys who, in theory, had a similar experience to you. They at least lived in the few square miles where you lived and went to the same stupid, you know, Sbarro's at a food court that you did and certainly hooked up with a lot more women than you did on campus. But, uh, you know, for the most part had similar experiences and there's something that unites you as opposed to there's nothing that unites you to the Knicks the aside from the fact that you live in the same city or grew up in the same city or own a freaking hat, you know?
1: And that's spot on. Um, I guess transitioning a little bit. Uh your article last week actually was incredibly well received. I know you uh you may not have expected that. But uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. You know a lot of other people did as well. Uh seemed that that the tips for the single orange man or woman uh definitely uh definitely seemed at least up everybody's alley on paper.
2: Good. That's nice to hear. No one uh no one yelled at me in the comments, so I didn't know if I'm losing my touch or uh, or if I just wrote a, a rare good
1: article that people actually liked. People have uh, decided to direct their uh, their hate at me as of late. Although I've yeah. actually gained a certain, I've gained enough favor uh, with the fan base since I put myself through recapping play calling all season, and, and this season in particular, um, some some commenters were campaigning for me to earn sainthood, which. Overdone sure, but to be honest, it was it was really a struggle towards the end of the year.
2: Yeah, deserve it for for sure. I uh I, I don't know how you possibly do it. Especially on the west coast.
1: Fair. Yeah, recap recapping games, I mean rewatching them for a second time when it's seventy five or eighty degrees and sunny out and I'm a mile from the beach is not it's not exactly my idea of a of a fun day, but but there we were. Um what would you say as far as as uh, as far as the article, which everyone should go read um, over on News Magician, uh, what would you say is the big kind of, well, the one, if people are going to take one tip from that, from that guide, what would be uh, your recommendation?
2: Well, geez, I almost feel stupid to, to offer tips. I mean, I'm a 35-year-old married guy. Like, uh, I, I certainly can't offer kids at Syracuse tips on what to do at college, you know. As far as I know all the uh all the college kids are having threesomes every night that we missed out because we're <laughs> too old but uh you know that's one great thing about having a college that that loves and supports sports if you're a single person is 12 football games a year 40 basketball games a year you can always go to a bar and just see a good-looking girl a cool guy and an orange shirt and strike up conversations. And and it's really easy to meet people. I I don't know how people meet people that went to, I don't know, Holy Cross or, you know, uh, Emerson or something. But for us, we're very lucky, especially if we're in a major city. You know, there's, there's countless Syracuse bars in Manhattan and Boston and D.C. And, you know, if you're a, a single man or woman and, you're not meeting anybody, uh, there's no reason you shouldn't be going uh to root on our, our basketball team and finding a man or a woman who also gets pissed off every time Trevor Cooney misses a, a wide open three pointer and you can bond on that and maybe you'll fall in love and have a nice Syracuse themed wedding.
1: Yeah, and honestly there's even uh there's even LA bars, if you'd believe it. Uh for those of not aware, LA is actually a pretty big hub of orange fandom.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another great thing about being a, a, a private school. We, we we send our people out to just about every major city. I mean, you go to, a, a, you know, an Oklahoma or, I don't know, an Ohio State, most of the alumni are going to be close to campus in the major cities. But, you know, we send our, our alumni to just about every major city in America. And I'm sure, you know, Dallas and Seattle and all these places have great great Syracuse support groups. Everywhere I go, I see Syracuse gear. I was in Europe this summer and, you know, Syracuse hats and Syracuse gears and I'm a weirdo. And so I talk to these people and they wonder why I'm bothering them. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really great. And it's one great thing about having a, a private school that's great at sports. It's, it's the one thing we have over the public schools. We always try to figure out, you know, how can we beat these public schools that have huge boosters and whatnot? Well, you know, we have just wider-reaching uh, uh, alumni support, which, you know, I don't see Alabama fans in, in New York. I'm sure there's some, but, you know, we have we have fans in all the major cities in America.
1: It's true. I know you brought up a point before, too, you know, talking about people in college now. Um, I would say, at least from my own experience, the one thing, if there's any current college students listening, um... Meeting people while you're at school is, is very, very underrated while you're there. And and suddenly when you leave, it's incredibly difficult to just strike up random conversations with the opposite sex. Not impossible, obviously, but you don't realize how good you have it in terms of just the the natural meeting with people um, of, of yeah. opposite sex or the same sex or whatever you're into. Like You don't realize it until you're gone just how difficult it is to strike up those conversations
2: yeah I noticed a weird thing when i uh when I left college and i I lived in Hoboken for the first two years out of uh out of syracuse and so i'd go to I'd go to bars and i I'd treat the hoboken bars like I treated uh you know Darwin's or Fagans, and try to talk to girls like i did there and you know I was completely shut down and it was awful and you you do lose out on that that proximity thing, and, you know, it takes a while to get back on track and figure out how to actually function as as an adult in the world talking to, uh, you know, people of the opposite sex. So, yeah,
1: you're absolutely right. Uh, Enjoy it while you're there. Of course, I would also note you might want to listen to Aaron more than me because I met my wife in class at Syracuse, not at a bar. So... Uh, what, as far as yeah, game, why are you giving
2: an advice? <laughs> well, maybe you could recap. Uh, maybe you could recap how you picked up your wife. All, all the plays for the blog. I, I mean, admittedly,
1: I mean, you know no. what? It's, getting a date while you're in class is not an easy thing to do either.
2: Yeah, especially because most people don't go to class. So that's that's an accomplishment in, in of itself. <laughs>
1: All right, I guess we'll consider this kind of halftime. I know usually on the show, uh, typically Dan and I, um, we have our little halftime, talk about some beer. So, uh, Aaron, what have you been drinking lately? Um, Anything interesting you want to share with the readers?
2: Well, first of all, I hope Dan wasn't bumped and that he actually gets to appear this week. But uh, I'm actually drinking a beer you sent me right now. I'm drinking the uh, Golden Road Might as Well uh imperial pell lager we've been uh we've been doing some uh beer swaps uh new york to l a lately i've been sending you uh some of new york's best stuff you've been sending me uh a lot of stuff from the burgeoning uh l a beer scene and i think we've been enjoying it right
1: we definitely have' I'm actually i just poured your uh mass rising double i p l myself
2: oh great so we're both drinking IPLs. Uh, Mass Rising is from uh, a great brewery called Jack's Abbey in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh it's en route to my in law's house, so I always make my wife stop there so I can pick up uh beer. It's a all lager brewery, which kinda sounds weird, but they uh they make some great stuff, really uh hoppy stuff, really boozy stuff and uh making a lot of interesting styleistic choices with loggers. Uh I hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying your uh might as well IPL
1: from Golden Road, for sure. I'm glad. I know we talk about, you know, everyone's kind of... There's a weird hate for Golden Road out here, which I don't understand because they're the largest brewer in the entire county, um, which is probably why. Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but the the flippant might as well IPL rhyming scheme is actually something that has been pointed to on message boards is another reason to hate them, which, to be honest, if someone who likes their beer, kind of makes me want to drink it more.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm really enjoying it. I loved canned beers, actually. It's a 16-ounce can, very easy to drink uh, from. Um, and uh, you sent me their uh, Wolf Among Weeds as well, correct?
1: I did. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of Wolf Among Weeds. I know I mentioned it to Dan as well, um, he's been on here, that uh, Wolf Among Weeds, I mean, at least to me, in the microcosm of. LA County uh, brewing and and Orange County because I think Orange County kind of gets lumped in with us as well. Um, well, Long Weeds is one of the most underrated beers um, in, in the entire Southern California area just because of who brews it. Because um, no one's really no one's really willing to to look past that, despite the fact that it's actually a pretty solid uh, Lagunita suck substitute. If I had to kind of yeah. make a comparison. Okay.
2: Yeah. I loved it. I mean, L.A.'s beer scene is not getting a ton of respect right now, but you sent me a lot of stuff that uh, isn't even getting the greatest reviews on Beer Advocate or rapier, Beer, but it was all top-notch stuff that I, I really enjoyed, and we know how the beer world works. It's, uh, it's not necessarily the quality in the can or bottle that uh, gets the high scores. It's... Uh, often hype and, you know, rarity and other things. But, uh, yeah, I've been really impressed with uh, the L.A. stuff you've been sending me. Uh, the Modern Times stuff was incredible. Um, very excited to try a lot of the other things you sent me.
1: I'm glad. Yeah, Modern Times, uh, they're also an interesting case out here. They've only been around for about a year and change. Um, they're down in, like, the northern part of San Diego, but they've actually somehow managed to – I mean – They've managed to really blow up in, in just shorter in just over a year. Um demand has outpaced production the entire time. Uh, they've recently really kind of uh doubled down on, on bottles. I know they just released a bunch of sours. Um so the Imperial um shout that I sent you is really quite excellent, uh Monsters Park, They have a couple of different varieties um on top of that one. that they had a a whiskey one, they had a bourbon one, um a couple others too. They're definitely, uh, I think, one to watch nationally, because I know yeah, I they, uh, they've already gotten to North Carolina. Uh,
2: yeah, I saw they had a Black Friday release, too.
1: Yeah, they've really uh, I, they've found a way to capitalize on, on what's been just an incredible amount of goodwill, I know. For for those who hang around on Beer Advocates, um, if you're on the Pacific forums and you talk about modern times, chances are their founder, Jacob, um, will immediately chime in, but not as as someone intruding on a conversation, but really is just like a pal that you drink with. Um, and mm-hmm. if there's ever customer service issues, he's he dives in immediately. Yep, highly recommend recommended. Um, as I mentioned, uh, drinking Mass Rising from Jack's Abbey that, uh, that Aaron had provided a couple of weeks ago. Also, it just finished off a uh, zombie dust from Three Floyds because um, when you get a lot of bottles of Black Tuesday, you can pretty much get whatever beer in the country you want so I used that to my advantage in uh, in recent weeks um, and enjoyed one of those. I have a bunch more coming, actually. I uh, also had the other night, watching the games, enjoyed a uh, Seven Swans of Swimming from the brewery. It was actually on tap at a, uh, at a bar, which was was a nice change of pace. Nice. Yeah, so I guess transitioning away from beer, um, things you do when you drink beer... Um, let's talk about your books. Um I know that the big thing here was you know being the first to really release two two different books the same day. Um it's an incredibly cool concept. If you haven't seen um, you know, again, Aaron's piece on News Magician or haven't clicked through to Amazon, uh would highly recommend it. We'll have the uh the promotion code um, for the books in the uh the post that everyone will see on Wednesday. But, Aaron, do you just, like, take us through the books? Um, Kind of the main takeaways, just, you know, a little synopsis, if you would.
2: Yeah. So, I I actually went to uh, film school at Syracuse, Newhouse, TRF, and I remember one of my professors told me, told a class, he said, you know, it was a film business class, he said each week uh, Hollywood releases a guy movie and a girl movie. You know, they release Batman and a Reese Witherspoon movie. They release you know, Captain America and, uh, you know, Jennifer Aniston movie or whatever, you know, they're just trying to hedge their bets, you know, just trying to get one niche group to go to their, to their thing. So I always thought like, well, that's, you know, kind of weird. What if you, what if you controlled both the guy and girl release for the week? So it'd been something I've been sitting on for a long time. And, uh, then in about, uh, you know, 2010, my, my manager came to me and he said, have you, uh, you heard of this uh, Walter Massow movie from the 60s called The Guide for a Married Man? And I hadn't, and he said, don't watch it, it's it's awful. But, you know, I, of course I watched it, and it, it was awful, but it was uh, a movie uh, broken apart into vignettes, uh, whereas uh, uh, Robert Morse, who's actually, uh, he plays Burt Cooper on Mad Men, this was 1967, though, gives uh, Walter Massow his guide for how to be a married man. So uh, my manager, Craig, thought I should write a book called uh, The Guide for a Single Man. I was single at the time when uh, when he when he pitched this idea to me. So I, I kind of coupled that with, with my idea to want to control both a male and a female uh, uh, product for the weekend, and I decided to write two books at once. And I thought no one had ever done it before. Stephen King kind of did it before, but I'm the only one to have really released two books at the same time that can be read in either order. You could you could read one and not read the other, but if you read both, you get the full story. Uh, the Guide for the Single Man is told from a man's perspective. The Guide for a Single Woman is told from the woman's perspective. It's, it's about a single night of bar hopping in uh, Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan, uh, drinking, flirting, pickups. The uh, the characters in both books interact with each other at times, and at times they're away from each other. And you know, you might you know see one character talk to to hit on a, a girl, and then you wonder what happens when he walks away. And you can discover that in the other book. Uh, but uh, people are generally enjoying them. Uh, oddly enough, the the female guide seems to be more popular. But uh, yeah, it, they're they're doing pretty well.
1: Awesome. Was there uh? I know on the front cover, is there a specific bar that was fashioned after? Is it an actual bar that, that has kind of the background there? The front cover? Yes. Yeah. Oddly
2: enough, the front cover is at a uh, a bar in Boulder, Colorado, which I've never even been to. Um, the funny thing is the, 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 the woman on the female guide, the the blonde, Kind of looks like my wife from behind, so so many people assume it's her, if not, but she's had to answer a million questions from people assuming it's her uh I don't look anything like the uh man on the uh on the uh the mail guide, but uh yeah, I don't actually know who those actors are that were on the covers, and I've never been in the bar but i'm I'm really pleased with what the cover looks like, and it certainly looks like a cool bar I would go to,
1: yeah, I mean admittedly. And then have a full view of the past, which to me is usually the utmost important uh thing to look at when you get into a bar. But um I, I do think the cover, yeah, really kind of I think it's smart, it's quick, it, it really kind of gives you the story right away, um, in terms of like what you're gonna be reading, but I think it draws attention. I think a lot of people are either going for overly minimalistic or overly maximalistic covers lately, and I do feel like even though we're not browsing around Barnes and Noble necessarily, um, we're kind of all buying books online in one way or another. Uh, I do think it, uh, it definitely draws you in if you're looking, if that's, you know, the book you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I did the same thing as you
2: when they showed me the, the proofs of the cover. I looked at them, I saw Oscar blues and it looks like an Odell's maybe. And it looks like the guy's drinking a Negroni, which is something I drink. And I said, yeah, this is, this is spot on. I'm, I'm, perfectly happy with it and I sign off on it. It looks like a, a bar I'd hang out with uh when I was single and even now, yeah. I was I was completely sold.
1: Nice, nice. Um, so I guess like do you I, I know that your that all of your books um don't necessarily, you know, link to one another, um in actual plot but do you think that there's any links to this one in spirit from from your other uh, written works
2: Uh, yeah maybe I think if you enjoy enjoy my writing on News Magician or Esquire or other places I write you'll like it you know these are these are light stories about drinking and hanging out and you know life for 20 and 30 somethings and, and you know Big cities, just out of college. So, if you like that kind of storytelling, uh, you know, I think you'll you'll like these kind of kind of books. They're not they're not stuff you're going to struggle to get through. They're they're books you can read uh, over a weekend, or you know, knocking a chapter or two off on the subway, or you know, while sitting on the toilet. They're 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 not super literary works. They're they're easy books to read.
1: Awesome. And I I, I would definitely agree. I know, actually. Might as well tie in a sponsor here while we're doing it. Um, for those who uh, are big fans of our tyingwithaudible.com, you can actually find Aaron's uh, book, How to Fail, the Self-Hurt Guide, there. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend it. I know I have uh, both of Aaron's previous books on my like Kindle Fire. Um have definitely used them uh, to make a plane ride go a lot faster. Um, and if you're reminiscent about your time at Syracuse, um, no matter how much or little, it's uh, it mentions that you do kind of uh, get to visualize your own time um, at Syracuse uh, within Aaron's work. So, yeah, would highly recommend that on Audible. And, again, you can go check out uh, a free 30-day trial of audible.com with our uh, URL, audiblepodcast.com slash noonsmagician. So, highly recommend that. Um, we're kind of wrapping up on time, but before we do, uh wanna discuss your uh your article today that came out, the uh, the one on beer muling. Because honestly I find that very entertaining and uh my coworkers who see me boxing shit up all the time. Um I sent it to them just as a kind of explanation piece and I think they all kind of appreciate it. Good.
2: Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's 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 got a weird reaction. I mean, you know, I think certain people know they're in these groups and other people think they don't possibly exist, but you know, it's just people that purchase an exorbitant amount of beer and distribute it to uh, other people across the country for sometimes for trade and sometimes for money. But uh, you know, if you're ever missing out on beer, it's because there's guys more organized than you making sure they get every single bottle of rare beer out there.
1: I agree there. Can you think, I know this is a constant conversation on, on places like Beer etiquette. Do you think that that hoarding is, and, and I guess situations like this with like a ton of mules and things like that, do you think that's becoming a drain on the beer community, or do you think that it's just kind of part of the territory? And if you're smart, you figure out a way in.
2: And, you know, I don't know. I'm in a weird position, both as a guy who writes about beer and a guy who's been in the beer community for so long that. I have the connections that it doesn't affect me, and if anything, it helps me. I <laughs> I know countless mules, and they get me all the bottles I want, so I don't miss out on beers, and I don't have to try particularly hard to get, you know, Black Tuesdays or zombie dusts. You know, it's it's not braggy. It's just, it's just the fact of the matter. But if I was a younger guy, you know, I might be pissed, and if I didn't live in a big city, I might be pissed trying to figure out how can I ever try these things. And, but it, it it's just the fact of you know the way the world works we wanna we wanna collect and covet things that we can i mean the the thing that goes unsaid is that breweries do not really operate on a uh you know market capitalist system they they undercharge for their beers if if they were charging higher prices for their beers, people would be pissed off but People also wouldn't be muling a hundred bottles of them. So, you know, the the fact that Bourbon County Stout costs $6 for a bottle as opposed to like 15 or 20 makes it easier for people to buy a zillion bottles. The fact that Black Tuesday costs 25 bucks as opposed to a hundred makes it easier for people to buy countless bottles of it. And, you know, that's not something anyone wants to talk about, but you know, that's, that's the way beer is going to eventually go. There's $1,000 bottles of wine. There's $10,000 bottles of wine. Crappy bottles of wine are $20, yet, you know, the best beers in the world are, you know, $10, $15, $35. And, you know, places are going to have to up the cost of their beers if they want to correct the marketplace for, for both muling and trading and, and the black market.
1: That's definitely an interesting take, and I think I definitely agree. There is no there is no one, at least, making money off the industry that's necessarily looking to do that. Or at least looking to broach that conversation. I mean, even as someone who who benefits from the breweries um, fairly high comparable to the market prices, um, I would say that still, like, the amount of time and ingredients that they put in, um, I, I would say that they're still probably undercharging, even if most would say that they're probably getting the most bang for their buck in the industry um, or, or at least close to the most compared to, to other, uh, other brewers.
2: Sure. I mean, I don't even know if you read about it. Just uh, two nights ago, uh 5050 out in uh, Truckee, California, I believe released a, uh, a Happy Van Winkle barrel stout and they charged $45 a bottle, which is at the uppermost level for, for uh, a retail price for a beer and they had 500 bottles and that sold out in like a minute, you know? So there's certainly prices people haven't reached and, you know, people hate to admit it and consumers are certainly not going to want to hear the fact that within five to 10 years, there's going to be a lot of hundred dollar beers coming out, $200 beers coming out, you know, Poppy Van Winkle Barrel beers are going to certainly be costing like several hundred dollars and there's going to be less hoarding. There's not hoarding in, and you know a lot of other alcohol-based uh, uh, collecting industries, just because you know it would be impossible to hoard you know thousand-dollar bottles of scotch unless you were you know Mark Cuban, um, and that's where beer is going to go for better or worse.
1: Agreed. Um, yeah, I think that the thing too with uh, with beer is is that so much of it, not all of it obviously, but so much of it is age-specific. Um, yeah. You to look at the work that, that Sierra Nevada and Stone have done um, in terms of, you know, drink-fresh dates and, and, and things like that. And I think that's the one thing that beer, at least, I think will always kind of nerf the uh, inhibit the price a little bit. Um, Is it, just that that expiration date. I mean, people, I mean, I've had plenty of IPAs that were six months old, and you do notice a, a considerable difference um, in flavor as the hop character sort of deteriorates. And, and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as there are so many in-demand IPAs, um, you know, how hoarding kind of affects that. Again, like, for me, compared to what I did at the beginning um, of my, my you know, craft adventure, I guess, um, where I was like, all right, like, not paying more than 10 for a bomber. And then, like, now, you know, at 26 years old, like, I'm, I was happily buying as many um, $30, $30 bottles of Black Tuesday as I could possibly get. I could kind of ship them around the country and I, I think while the, the price on on your, your dark beers um, and especially like the barrel aged stuff continues to go up I'm curious how how high the uh, the IPAs and pale ales in particular can go
2: I mean I don't I don't see I mean something like Black Tuesday is currency you can turn a $30 bottle into potentially $50 worth of beer you can't get on the other because I mean Goose Island Vanilla Rye, which is twenty five dollars retail, is is selling on black market websites for one hundred and hundred and fifty dollars right now. And that beer's been out for three weeks. I don't think IPAs will ever go to an extraordinary high level because, you know, unless you live in a total dump of a town, your your best local brewery's best IPA, two days old, is always going to be better than a 20-day-old Pliny, a 30-day-old Hetty Topper. I mean, and I've been telling people this forever, you know. New York's not the greatest IPA town, but a, a fresh other half, a fresh carton, a fresh cane, a fresh Peak skill is vastly superior to even a three-week-old Hetty or, you know, whatever. And people don't believe that, but, you know, it's a fact, and... I don't think raising prices on IPAs, I think raising prices on IPAs would make them realize that that their local fresh stuff is, is vastly superior than old uh, uh, stuff coming out from other parts of the country.
1: Uh, spot on. Um, and, and again, you know what, like folks like you and obviously, you know, between Stone and Sierra Nevada and others, I think that people at least, at least those who want to take the time to do it are making sure to, to, to seek out those fresh ideas. It's disappointing when, when even brewers won't necessarily cooperate um, and and make sure that the, you know, the, the bottle date is visible, things like that. I mean, no, at the end of the day, you're not necessarily going to taste the difference between a 15-day-old, you know, Pliny and an 18-day-old Pliny. But at the same time, like, if you're looking at another brewer, like someone like Golden Road or others that might have, like, you know, mass four-packs at every single retailer in in Los Angeles County, people just want to know freshness. It's just like anything else. It's like bread. It's like milk. People want to know what the freshness is. How long do I have to drink this? How fresh is this? Um, And I think the more brewers that kind of come to grips with that and, and, and agree with that, um, I think the better off we'll all be, and the better off even like maybe questioning craft drinkers, people who will casually drink it but are no problem with a Bud Light either, might start siding more towards craft and local options in particular if it was yeah. if it was more clear to them that 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 fresh was better.
2: Yeah, I mean you're exactly right. You know, IPAs should be treated like milk. Unlike milk, they don't make you sick once they're they're past their their best date, but you know they're certainly not as pleasing and it it would be a great service if if most breweries could let people know that you know that sixty day old uh you know helagonitis sucks that you're drinking is uh is is not good, and you shouldn't be drinking it
1: yep. all right so uh I guess that's all from me uh anything else you wanted to tell the folks uh before we kind of sign off?
2: Now, I just want us, uh, (laughs) I want the basketball team to get back on track. I want you to buy my books and I want you to uh, keep drinking good, fresh beer.
1: I agree on all fronts. All right, so uh, that was Aaron Goldfarb, author of The Guide for a Single Man and Single Woman, which you should go grab on Amazon. Again, we'll have the code on the uh, post under the magician on Wednesday. Um, I'm John as always, and I would highly recommend you uh, review and rate and be super nice to the podcast because that all those things actually make a difference and actually make people want to or not listen to this. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in and uh, go orange.